I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Difficult year for biotechs with drops in the major biotech indices, fewer new drug approvals, and more than 125 companies announcing layoffs. But there were also triumphs to celebrate. We continue our annual tradition of ending the old year and ushering in the new one with Adam Feuerstein, Polk Award winning journalist and senior biotech writer for STAT. We discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of biotech in 2022. Feuerstein's annual best and worst CEO list, and what's ahead at J.P. Morgan and beyond in 2023. Adam, thanks for joining us. Danny, happy new year. Happy holidays. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Thanks. Well, this is an annual ritual for us. It is. Appreciate you taking the time. Sure, sure. Uh, it was a down year for approvals, a, a down year on the finance front, more than 125 biotechs announced layoffs, and there's a swelling of the ranks of microcaps in the biotech sector. Was it as bad a year for biotechs as it sounds? Well, put it that way, Danny. I mean, why are we even doing this? Man. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was kind of a year where I felt like I was saying this to a colleague of mine, like it felt like it was sort of a continuation of 21 where it just like, you know, it never really got any better. It just sort of got a little bit progressively worse, sort of like COVID, right? Over an extended period of time where, and almost to the point where you sort of get used to the bad news and the down market, right? Like you kind of just learn to live with it. So this um, is long biotech, is that what yeah, you're Yeah, it's like a slog now. Um, like all the things that you just said, Danny, are absolutely true. So yeah, it, it's a it's been a really challenging uh, year for I think for you know for the industry, uh, you know for people who invest in the industry. Uh, you know there were some bright spots, and I don't we should we should talk about some of those bright spots. I don't because I don't think we you know no one wants to listen to us just complain and well things for uh, on the however plus long side, we're going to do this. <laughs> uh, uh, on the plus side. The FDA did approve three gene therapies in 2022, yes. yeah. two from Bluebird and one from CSL Bearing. There are more coming behind that. What's it going to take for these advanced therapies to be market successes? Right. Yeah. You know, that is one of the I think that's one of the really interesting, noteworthy stories for 2023 uh, is, is, you know, what happens to these approved gene therapies and, you know, can you know, can they become a business essentially? Right. I mean, uh, we, we know from this, you know, all the science and stuff that these, that these therapies, these sort of one-time potentially curative treatments are very effective for patients. Uh, like you said, you mentioned a bunch of them were approved in uh, over the last 12 months, uh, you know? And so the question becomes is, you know, these are, these come at a great cost, right? You know, we're talking about two, $3 million per treatment. Uh, and there is a cost effectiveness argument that, is made that, you know, when you look at the value of these treatments and, you know, sort of, you know, if you, if you can potentially cure somebody, then 
they don't have to have take medicines chronically or they have you know less need to go to be monitored or go that or to see their doctor so like there is a a value to sort of these medicines and that's the argument that they make but again it's very difficult for our healthcare system to uh, digest such a large upfront cost for these therapies. So the question for 2023 is, you know, whether a company like Bluebird, as you mentioned, you know, they have a gene therapy for beta thalassemia that's now approved and, you know, can they, can they make a go of it? Will they be able to attract a significant number of people who are willing to, to be treated with it? Uh, insurers are, are insurers, insurance companies going to reimburse for it. Is our healthcare system going to be able to absorb these costs? And, and there are obviously many more, uh, gene therapies coming down the pike. And when I think about 2023, I think of uh, Sarepta Therapeutics has their gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh, it's already been submitted to the FDA. And so that, that approval decision will happen next year. Uh, Biomarin has their gene therapy for hemophilia A. That will, that approval decision will happen. So again, we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think it's a big story uh, for the next 12 months. Beyond gene therapy, we're, we're seeing a, a whole range of genetic medicines from RNA therapies to gene editing now advancing in the uh, clinical pipeline. How do you see these medicines changing medicine? Well, yeah, I mean, if, you, if we broadly think of, you know, gene therapy and genome editing, you know, think, think CRISPR type treatments, you know, generally sort of in, I put them in the same bucket uh, and some of them are you know, are pursuing the same indication. So for instance, in uh, beta thalassemia or in sickle cell disease, right, we have, uh, you know, gene therapy approach and we have uh, a CRISPR approach, right? And it's uh, maybe a little bit of a different genetic target in each, but uh, at the end of the day, from a patient perspective, you know, they, it, it sort of does the same thing. Uh, and, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty decent year for genome editing in terms of, the science, I mean, we've had some issues with the FDA, some clinical holds, and and that's kind of maybe put a little bit of a, some weight, you know, sort of you know, dark clouds over it. But I think generally it's it's been a pretty good year from the science perspective in terms of these progressing into the clinic. We're seeing more data in more patients. Uh, again, the same sort of business model issues are out there. Um, but, you know, like, you know, Vertex and CRISPR therapeutics, their, you know, their treatment that they're co-developing for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia, uh, you know, is expected to be filed with the FDA kind of early next year. And so that is another approval decision that we will get in 2023. You've spent a lot of the past few years writing about efforts to develop therapies for neurodegenerative diseases. This year, we saw the approval of Amlix's ALS drug. How significant approval was this? I think it was pretty significant. Uh, you know, obviously ALS is a disease that uh, I know that the patient community and their advocates have felt like has been a little bit uh, ignored, uh, both from a sort of development standpoint and from an FDA standpoint, and maybe not gotten the attention that it needs to have. Uh, so the fact that this drug was approved and, you know, with obviously with overwhelming support from uh, from the ALS community uh, was a was a big uh, was a big move uh, this year. Uh, cost a lot, you know. Again, cost a lot of money, uh, and the question is, you know, our insurance company is going to pay for it. I, I I know there's been some stories written, you know, more recently looking at sort of the um, you know the hurdles that patients are having to go through uh, in terms of getting their insurance companies to reimburse 
uh, for the amylix drug. And, you know, unfortunately, that is a problem that, I, you know, probably many of us who are listening to this, you know, have have had with it lo- lots of different medication, you know, prior authorizations and and restrictions and, and the like. And so that is going to be again, I think that is another story to look at and to, to pay attention to for for 2023 to just sort of see how, um, you know, what that launch looks like. We also saw encouraging results for lecanemab. This is an Alzheimer's drug in development by ASI and Biogen. How encouraging are the phase three results? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we should we should get uh, the FDA's approval decision on lecanemab probably just right after New Year's. You know, the, the PDUFA date is... January 6th. So I, I anticipate that the FDA is going to make that decision uh, as we all sort of start the year. Uh, and I think that, you know, people pretty much widely expect that drug to be approved. Uh, as you said, it's not a cure for Alzheimer's. It, it, the clinical trials shows that, you know, not only does it remove the amyloid deposits, uh, toxic amyloid deposits from the brain, but it, it, it more importantly slows uh, cognitive decline and in, in function in in patients with Alzheimer's, um, the magnitude of that benefit is something that is hotly debated. Right, there are people who believe that that um, the the slowing of the progression of Alzheimer's that we're seeing with lecanemab is meaningful for patients, and there are people on the other side who feel like it's it's too modest. It's not enough to for for, for a, a patient and maybe their caregivers to really kind of pick up that you know, pick up a difference there, pick up the benefit. Uh, so that is going to be a debate that'll be out there. You know, the other issues obviously is just safety and uh, the fact that these these types of amyloid targeting drugs do cause uh, brain bleeds and hemorrhaging, micro hemorrhages in the brain called, you know, it's a, it's a side effect called ARIA that I think people are getting to know a lot more about as as medicines like this are, are, are developed. And that is going to require a lot of monitoring of patients. Um, and that's, you know, that's a logistical challenge for a drug like lecanemab. And it, it's a challenge for uh, ASI and their partner Biogen as they roll this drug out to patients. Um, you know, how are physicians going to identi- a, identify the patients who were maybe best suited for lecanemab, but also just how, you know, how they get treated. This is an infusion that requires, uh, it's, it's two infusions a month. So that's a, you know, that's a difficult thing to put together. Then there's all the monitoring. Uh, and so, you know, I think it'll be, it, it will be something, you know, this is something that ASI and Biogen have, have talked about. I think that they recognize that this is going to be difficult and that, you know, this is not, it's not like taking a pill and it's not a commercial launch where, you know, you're going to see instant uptake. Uh, you know, we haven't even talked about the cost of the kind of, we don't even know what the cost is going to be. So there's that, that all, there's that whole issue as well. Um, but, you know, to be optimistic about it, I have talked to physicians uh, in, in, you know, in the last couple of weeks, cause I'm just sort of preparing, you know, for the eventual approval. And, and I have talked to, you know, again, physicians who treat people with Alzheimer's uh, who are encouraged, you know, they feel like this is sort of the beginning of something. Um, One physician told me that, you know, she's been around a long time. She remembers the early days of ACT in, in, in HIV, you know, when, when that was the only drug and there was a debate about whether, well, is this really good enough to, you know, for HIV? And, um, 
you know, what happened, you know, that was just the start of, of the development of a whole host of medicines for HIV, which, you know, again, used to be a deadly disease and is now a, is now a disease that's completely treatable and chronic and, and people don't die of HIV uh, if they, if they get the medicines that they need. And, and this physician told me that she feels like that's kind of where we're at with Alzheimer's right now, that maybe lecanemab is not the, it's certainly not the ultimate answer. Um, but it may be the start of something and that it could lead to other other more effective treatments down the road. We've gotten so used to these phase three blowups in Alzheimer's. You think we're finally beyond that? Blowups in Alzheimer's? I mean, you know, maybe I, I think we're, we're seeing I mean, I think we're starting to see the development of the of those sort of amyloid targeting drugs. Um, you know, we tend to, I mean, sometimes we tend to sort of very simplistically sort of put them all in the same bucket, but, you know, there are differences, you know, there are differences between lecanemab and aducanemab, you know, aduhelm, right? There are differences between these drugs and denanemab, the, the drug that Lilly is developing and is, has, is in phase three studies right now. Uh, so, and I think those differences do matter. Uh, and as do sort of the trials that you run and the patient population that you that you enroll. And I think people have gotten smarter about about all of that so that maybe that avoids some of the blow ups. Um, but it also may also limit the kind of the potential. Right. Because you, you need to find the right patient, you know, but blow ups may also still happen. Right. We saw that with Roche's uh, Alzheimer's drug, which, you know, just again, people were somewhat optimistic about it. But, you know, it, it ended up not not working. Well, another Alzheimer's drug, Anavex, the company reported. Uh, you want to ruin this recording <laughs> with that conversation, Danny? Come on. Well, the, the company reported what it called successful results. <laughs> you didn't seem to embrace the success. Uh, you know, it's what are you going to say? You know, it's when you don't, you know, when you run a clinical trial, I guess I would say, you know, report results from that clinical trial as they are prospectively defined. Right. And Anavex is a company that has a habit, an unfortunate habit of um, designing studies, running clinical trials and then sort of making up their own endpoints at the end. Um, And, you know, you can you can read into that however you want to read into it. Well, what are you watching in terms of Alzheimer's drugs in 2023? Well, again, I, I think the biggest thing will be lecanemab and just the rollout. Uh, you know, again, not to get too sort of too technically in the weeds. You know, we know like the initial approval is the accelerated approval, right? So it's technically based on just amyloid lowering. Um, we obviously they've already run their confirmatory study. That's the study that was presented back in November, and they will be submitting that to the FDA basically almost the same time that they get the approval. And so. You know, we'll look at that final approval that will also come down maybe sometime in the middle of the year. And then, you know, they have to submit all of these data to CMS and sort of to, to be able to uh, get Medicare reimbursement. And so that's uh, another storyline that we'll be watching. And then I mentioned uh, Eli Lilly's Denanumab, you know, that that phase three study and that program um, will also, you know, and I think, you know, that drug is also under review already uh, for accelerated approval. So again, you know, we'll, I think we'll sort of go through this whole exercise that we did with Lecanemab this year. We'll be going through that with Nanomab in 2023. There seemed to be more turmoil this year in the executive suites. Biogen was among the, the companies to name a new CEO, Chris Weibacher, the one-time Sanofi CEO. Yeah. How surprising a choice was he? He it was I mean, it was a little bit surprising, but probably in hindsight, it, it shouldn't have been surprising. Maybe that's the way I would put it. Uh, I think he makes a lot of sense for Biogen. Uh, and he's also, you know, local. He's a 
Boston area guy. And uh, so, you know, I think it's a, it's an interesting choice for Biogen. You know, we haven't really heard much from Chris since he was appointed. Obviously he's got a lot of work to do uh, getting started. And, and, you know, know, the JP Morgan conference is coming up uh, very soon. And, and he is, uh, Biogen is scheduled to speak on the Monday, the first Monday of the, of the meeting uh, of the conference. And so I, I anticipate hearing from him and, and maybe him starting to, kind of lay out his vision for biogen you know and 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 noting you know maybe how that difference difference how that is different from uh ceos of the past and you know whether he wants to take the company into any new directions and so i that's going to be a a fascinating presentation to watch and and i will be there this is a a company that struggled to move beyond its ms franchise what do you think he's got to do well, I think that's part. Well, I think one of the questions is, is whether or whether he does see a future for Biogen in other in maybe other disease areas that the company has maybe not not pursued in the past. You know, I, I don't I don't see Biogen sort of like pivoting 180 degrees or, you know, away from what it's done. I think they will, you know, they will still focus on neurology and neuroscience as their sort of core strength. And I don't see any reason why they wouldn't want to do that. Um, you know, they, they, they obviously have interest in immunology and so in other areas. So, well, you know, I, again, I, it, that's, that's one of the questions out there. It's like, will he take, you know, incremental steps, like make incremental changes to Biogen and strategy, or is he going to, you know, I don't see him like blowing the place up, but is he going to try to go, in some new directions that that's kind of one of the questions I think while out there and, and he will be asked that I'm sure. As the year was coming to a close, Amgen's 27.8 billion acquisition of horizon basically put 2022 on par with 2021 in terms of M and a activity, but it was a less dynamic year for deal-making than many people expected. Is there reason to think activity will pick up in 2023? Uh, it's the perennial question, right? You ask everybody, like, what do you think M&A activity will be in the next 12 months? And the answer to those survey questions is always there will be more, right? Because it's just like, it's the it's the thing that I think it's the thing that everyone sort of gloms onto as kind of the sentiment indicator of choice, right? Everyone everyone sort of equates deal making with, you know, with the, with the movement of, you know, stocks and, and how people are feeling. Like you said, this year was kind of a weird mixed year. Like, you know, we had a, a, a bunch of deals right at the end, which kind of helped maybe catch up or make up the deficit that we had seen earlier in the year. Um, you know, all, all of the sort of factors that make for uh, bountiful deal making are in place, you know, big, pharma and big biotech have lots of cash they have needs they have to fill their pipelines they have patent ex- expirations that they have to deal with so um but does that necessarily mean that we'll see deals yeah like who knows like i i don't know we had um you know we had albert borla at our summit uh in november and you know he made a comment like you know he's like yeah stocks you know there's some stocks that are you know companies that we you know that are that have become cheaper but the companies that you want to buy they're still too expensive Right. So, uh, you know, whether that but then, you know, whether that means that Pfizer is going to you know, go out and, and buy every biotech company or not. Well, well I guess we'll, we'll we'll find out soon enough. Before we talk about your annual best and worst CEOs of the year, we did see the Theranos saga come to an end with the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes to 11 years in prison. 
Do you think there are lessons here for venture investors or budding entrepreneurs? Uh, don't lie. <laughs> don't get caught by the fans. Uh, yeah, you know, that, that's what I'm, you know, that, that's a saga that just sort of dragged on for a while, didn't it? Like, you know, maybe yeah. uh, sort of glad, and, you know, Sonny Balwani, you know, she, he got, he was sentenced to. And so we can sort of start putting the Theranos thing in the rear view mirror, hopefully. You do an annual best and worst CEO list. It, it always helps to sell your company for a multi-billion dollar price tag to get on the list. But this year's winner was Haru Naito, CEO of ASI. Yeah. How competitive year was it for NATO? Yeah. Did you like my list this year? I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. It's good. You know. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things where, um, yeah. So like I, like you said, I, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people on the list and, and, you know, and ultimately I like to sort of pick one person as the quote unquote winner, uh, even though it's an entirely subjective, it's basically my opinion. <laughs> so like, you know, who cares what I think? But um, like you said, Haru Nato is the was was the best biopharma CEO of 2022. He is the CEO of ASI. Uh, and, you know, I, I put him I named him, you know, for many of the reasons that we just talked about with with respect to lecanemab and Alzheimer's. Um, I felt like uh, they they just did a really good job of developing that drug in the face of a lot of adversity. Uh, in, a, in the face of a lot of questions about amyloid targeted antibodies, uh, you know, and so uh, sort of uh, contrasting it with sort of maybe the way that Biogen developed aducanumab, I just felt like ASI did a really great job and it was maybe sort of underappreciated by folks because, you know, we, we are obviously here sitting here in the United States. And I think we are, we sort of tend to have a U.S. centric lens through which we look at everything. And here is this Japanese pharma company with a, with, with quite frankly, a very long history in Alzheimer's, you know, they developed, they invented Aricept, which was the first symptomatic treatment for Alzheimer's. So like maybe people don't really sort of recognize that history and, and sort of the, the science that they've developed. So for those reasons, I thought he was a great selection, but at the same time, again, like we talked about where, you know, there is so much, uh, there's so many challenging uh, things that they need to overcome going ahead. You know, after, if we assume that, that Lacanumab gets approved, just in terms of being able to get that, make that drug accessible to patients, getting insurance companies to pay for it. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like they're at the 50 yard line and they still got a little, they got a long way to go to get to the touchdown um, to use a stupid sports analogy. But um, you know, so again, it can, a lot can go wrong, but I felt like enough went right that he was a good choice. For worst CEO, you say no winners, only accountability. Who was noteworthy on this year's list? Yeah, you know, uh, Clay Seagal from Seijin. And, you know, again, not to get into all the personal stuff, but the guy did not have a very, a very good year. Uh, you know, you get arrested on allegations of uh, domestic abuse and, uh, you know, have to leave the company that you founded and ran for a long time. Uh, you know, he's on the list. Uh, I put Alexis Borisi on the list. Um, it was probably my most controversial selection. You know, a lot of people really like 
Alexis, you know, he is obviously a kind of a legend in biotech in terms of his, you know, uh, his VC credentials and his the companies he started. And I personally like Alexis, too. But I felt like, you know, as uh, the founder of this company called EQRX, which was really founded to try to do things differently in terms of developing innovative medicines, but but at a lower price. And, you know, he um, when he when he founded the company, you know, there was this perception that, that he had some sort of um, magic formula to to do that, 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 that no one else had ever figured out that he was going to be able to, these were not going to be, you know, me too drugs. These were going to be innovative medicines. And he was going to figure out a way to do that cheap, more cheaply, less expensive and be able to price them more uh, at, at a discount to what we normally see in sort of the hyperinflated realm of, of drug pricing these days. Um, and you know, that, didn't happen. You know, this, the, the company has sort of fallen apart in a lot of ways. And you know, earlier, uh, earlier this fall, they had admitted that basically the drugs that they're going to develop, they're going to have to sort of price them at you know, market-based pricing, which means they're going to be as expensive as any other drug. And, and for that reason, I felt like he deserved to be on this list. And I did get a little pushback on that. I have to tell you, um, people thought I was a little unfair to put him on this list. But again, it's my list and I can do what I want. So he's well, on the list. <laughs> you know, the price of uh, uh, the price of having big visions and taking risks hey, is that you sometimes fail. Somebody else can put together a worse CEO list, and they can do whatever they want. And maybe Alexis wouldn't be on the list. He's on mine. J.P. Morgan is coming up pretty fast this year. Are you attending? You said you were. You know, I am. Um, yeah, we're actually so, sending a bunch of people out there this year. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's like full. It's like full JPM mode. And has has the buzz around J.P. Morgan changed in a post-COVID world? You know, I got to tell you, Danny, I think, and this is maybe this is a hot take, bold prediction. I think J.P. Morgan 2023 is going to be as crowded and like pre-COVID J.P.M.s. Like, and yeah. I'm and I'm not. I don't have any sort of scientific uh, evidence to point to, other than the fact that like lots of people are talking about it. Um, the, the number of emails I'm getting from desperate PR people to meet with their companies is kind of going crazy. Uh, lots of party invites being sent out. It does feel like, um, after a long absence, you know, we haven't been in San Francisco for JPM since January of 2020, the people are like clamoring to go back. Like, you know, COVID be damned. People like don't care. They'll get COVID. It's fine. But they want to be back in San Francisco for JPM week and they're going to be there. And so that's my prediction that it's going to be pretty crowded. And maybe a better indicator. How are hotel prices? I don't know because we rented a house (laughs) Uh, and and so we're avoiding the hotel situation Um, and someone else at my company deals with all of that. So I have no idea. But I'm, oh. I'm, I'm assuming the hotels are expensive, but I, I don't know. What are you looking for at J.P. Morgan and beyond? Um, I'm looking to avoid getting COVID. <laughs> um, and that may be impossible, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. Um, you know, I guess the, the, the sort of the there's like the nostalgic sort of thinking of like, go, go out. Yeah, I'm going to be back at the at the Western St. Francis Hotel, maneuvering through the crowded corridors, going from room to room. Uh, you know, I haven't done that in a while. So I, I might have to get used to that again. Like I still in my mind, like know how to navigate through the hotel, 
without a map. Um, but I might need some reminders. It's been a while. Um, but you know, more on, more on what you're, you're asking, Dan. You know, again, what I always like about the conference is it is the beginning of the year, and so you hear from companies and they sort of lay out their uh, vision for the next 12 months and you know what the priorities are you know what the questions or you know what the questions are sort of uh risks involved these you know whatever they're doing uh, all that sort of gets laid out and i i like that i do like hearing from these companies i think it sort of sets the table for the year and so that's you know i think i'll be spending most of my time you know again running from room to room uh at the jpm the actual JPM healthcare conference and just kind of hearing from companies. You're not big on making predictions, but do you expect a better year for biotech in 2023? I have no idea. You know, I mean, I mean, you'd hope so. You know, I think what's interesting and maybe not in a great way is that, you know, it's not particularly like in the last half of the year, maybe from the summer on, we have had some pretty good news come through biotech. You know, I think of like, you know, Corona Therapeutics with their, you know, with their schizophrenia drug. Uh, we just had the Gossamer data in NASH. You know, we had the Lecanemab data, uh, you know, first the initial readout and then sort of the confirmation of the data when it was presented at, at uh, a medical meeting. So in like, a, I would say like in normal times, all of those events would sort of lift the lift all boats in biotech. And it didn't, it hasn't really happened. Right. I mean, all those individual companies and their stocks have done well. But if you sort of look at a look across the sector, has, you know, has that brought more investors into biotech and has that lifted the index? You know, whether you look at the XBI or whatever index you happen to look at, um, it really hasn't done that yet. And so maybe that's a maybe there's a lagging effect there and that it, it will catch up. And so maybe early in the year. Uh, particularly if we have like more good news, then um, we will see a broad, ba- a more broad based uh, investor, you know, more investors, you know, generalists coming into uh, into biotech. We just we haven't seen that yet. And that's something that I think bears watching. Before we wrap, I want to ask you about one more deal in 2022 and whether it's had any impact on you. Elon Musk acquired Twitter as an <laughs> avid yeah, Twitter true. user and someone who's received his share of hate tweets. Have you noticed any changes or do you plan to make any changes in your so use of the platform? I, I try to stay out of all of the fray when it comes to that. Uh, you know, for me, Twitter is a tool, right? And I, and I think about it and I try to think about it as sort of coldly and as objectively as I possibly can. So like, is this tool helping me do my job better, uh, reach the people that I need to reach better and kind of put aside all of the stuff and drama. And I can tell you, like, when I look at, you know, uh, you know, sort of the metrics that I can look at it, it's been fine. Like I haven't, I haven't seen like a huge diminution in, in my Twitter audience or in my impressions or whatever. And so what that tells me is that I should just stay on Twitter uh, and, you know, and yeah, you know, have I have I sort of made placeholders on some of those other social media platforms? Yes, I have. Just in case I wake up one morning and like Twitter is gone. Um, but I really haven't done very much on those other platforms. Certainly a lot less than other people have done who have kind of tried to adopt them and and avoided Twitter for, for whatever reason. And I and I respect people. 
I respect everyone. Everyone has to make their own decision. And I respect people who have left Twitter for other platforms. For me, it's just like, as long as it's working for me, I'm going to use it. And I just try not to think too deeply into it beyond that. Like, I just don't really care about all the other stuff that happens. Adam Feuerstein, Polk Award-winning journalist and senior biotech writer for STAT. Adam, thanks as always. Danny, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.